0: plushcare.com slash loss
1: Welcome to Censored, the podcast where reading porn is classified as research. I'm Aoife Vrithnach, a historian with a trashy reading habit. If you like the show and want to spread the word... Please tell a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. In the show notes, you'll find links to my Patreon page. Patrons get the episodes a day early, unexpurgated interviews, and research notes. What's not to like? The book this episode is The Memoirs of Dolly Morton by Anonymous. Nobody really knows who wrote it. And it was published in 1899. It claims to be the biography of a woman who ran an underground railroad smuggling enslaved people out of bondage in the American South. Her story is told to an English gent who recounts her exploits for the reader because he took it all down in shorthand, apparently. The full title, in true 19th century style, is The Story of a Woman's Part in the Struggle to Free the Slaves an account of the whippings and violences that preceded the civil war in America, with curious anthropological observations on the radical diversities in the confirmation of the female bottom and the way different women endure chastisement. Well, that's a lot. There's politics, violence, and a bit of science to justify comparing different arses. If you did read it closely enough, you might guess this was filthy. In fact, it is a porno attributed to the publishing house of Charles Carrington. Like most 19th century smut merchants, he fled England for Paris, from where he sold his dirty books through the post. So what was a porno created for the 19th century British market doing on the Irish censors blacklist? If it was banned in the 1930s, I wouldn't be too surprised... But this gem of sadistic porn was blacklisted in 1989. The memoirs of Dolly Morton are part of the silly phase of Irish censorship. When the prohibition orders were so few, they seemed especially ridiculous. The banning of a sex manual, The Joy of Sex, in 1987 provoked much eye-rolling. But in general, nobody paid much attention to the censors. Discussions around censorship in 1989 were focused on video nasties, chat lines offering sexy girl talk, and the political censorship of the Sinn Féin party. The banning of Dolly Martin didn't make a single headline, but I couldn't resist including it when I found it was still in print. Most of the pornos on the blacklist are no longer available. National and public libraries don't collect that sort of smut. So at last, this was a rare opportunity for me to find smut without working too hard. Unfortunately, there is a content warning for this episode, not for the sex, I know that's why you're here, but for the racist language, racist violence and rape. As for a drink to go with the book, there is little mention of extraneous details like food or beverages in the memoirs of Dolly Morton. I imagine it was read by Victorian and Edwardian era men alone in a study, maybe wearing a smoking jacket, before a blazing fire accompanied by a glass of wine. Wine and filth are both inescapably French in the English-speaking imagination, so they go well together. But because I'm not classy and not a bloke who wears smoking jackets, I'm drinking gin, the poison of the 18th century masses or mother's ruin. And if I giggle too much, I can blame the gin, not the hilarious antique porn. I'll begin reading on the chapter pages. That long subtitle I already read out wasn't really dirty, unless you're sure the whipping is in a sexual context. Since the slave states of North America are inextricably linked in the public mind with floggings, you might read it in a non-sexual way. But turning the page to the chapter headings would quickly set you straight. Chapter 9 includes the subheading I become a past mistress in the joyful craft of bottom wriggling, but find no mental joy therein. All right, so no mental joy, but obviously physical joy. It's a very silly, mock-serious tone. But then when you read on to the subheading for chapter 10, it's distinctly less funny. It goes like this. My maid Rosa is whipped for impertinence. Description of her bottom and legs. Randolph's opinion on the right to rape coloured women. Randolph puts me on the sofa and does the usual thing. Well that is a bit fucking yikes. It's peculiar to read disturbing racist shit that's immediately followed by a hilarious euphemism for sex there's a kind of a whiplash of emotional response to a text like this. It makes me feel kind of queasy. A lot of the chapter titles are like this, the racist violence of slave society contrasting with jolly references to sex. The enslaved people given a name are mostly there because they have arses and legs, body parts that are the focus of this narrative's sexual interests. Breasts are not especially interesting or sexy in this particular porno. If you're looking for heaving bosoms, you won't find them here. I really struggled with the combination of dehumanising racism and coy sexual terms. I didn't really know where to go with it. So I'm covering the following themes. Sort of in order. Sex, whipping and slavery. I'm taking the funny sex bit firsts, then the horror of slavery even though they are woven around each other a lot. The reason for this is that Dolly Morton, the narrator, was running an underground railroad until the southern authorities found out. She and her fellow worker are whipped by white southern men who feel them up and mock them, threaten to rape them, but eventually don't. They are then made to ride the rail, that is, tied astride a fence without support so that all their weight bears on the sharp edge of the rail. In order to escape this torture, Dolly agrees to be the mistress of a local plantation owner, Randolph. Her memoir is an account of sex with Randolph and the whipping, spanking and paddling that surrounds her on the plantation. So it's at times hilarious and at other times deeply disturbing. Let's have the funnies first before we get into the heavy shit, starting with Bottom Wriggling what bottom wriggling actually means is sexual excitement leading to orgasm. Naturally, this only happens to Dolly when she's being poked. To my great hilarity, instead of shag or fuck, the text says poke. If you're from Northern Ireland, this is especially funny because going for a poke means going for an ice cream cone. There were 59 pokes in the text. I stopped giggling at about number 15. But back to arse jiggling. When Randolph first rapes Dolly, she wails, trashes and begs him to stop, but he ploughs on regardless. After some ridiculous nonsense about hymens that's too predictable to read out, she gets into it, against her better judgment and even conscious thought. This is her first orgasm from chapter 8. Randolph went on working, While I, quite involuntarily, moved my bottom up and down, keeping time with his thrusts, though I had not the faintest sensation of pleasure, quite the reverse. His movements became quicker and quicker. I writhed with pain, but still kept heaving up my bottom to meet him. He gave me two or three more furious pushes, then a gush of fluid came, and at the same time a curious spasm seized me. I could not help wriggling my bottom and squirming from side to side as I felt hot jets spurting onto my very vitals. The thick fluid, as it flowed over the lacerated edges of the ruptured membrane, seemed slightly to assuage the pain. When all was over, I lay in his arms panting, my naked bosom heaving, my face wet with tears and my whole body jerking spasmodically. There was a buzzing in my ears, a mist before my eyes, and I thought I was going to faint. Well, fucking hell, this is the apex of the magic cock trope, the alpha and omega of phalo Randolph's weapon, or iron-made tool, actual descriptive terms from the text, is so amazing that the rape is orgasmic. His mystical semen, sorry, magic cum, soothes her torn and battered flesh, or spot, as she calls it. Spot. I might never say hits the spot in quite the same way ever again after reading this. Dolly's first sexual experience is coercive, but hey, it all works out fine in the end. Of course, that end is orgasm at the same time as the man comes to. Perfect symmetry. You won't be fucking surprised to know that this is the first of many wrigglings that valorize cocks and seamen. Poke number two is described thusly. I suffered a good deal while the great thing was being worked up and down in the sore, raw folds of my spot. The pain made me grind my teeth and utter little cries. Again I was forced by nature to heave my bottom up and down to his strokes And when the spasm seized me, I wriggled and squirmed till I had received every drop of his offering. Offering? I mean, what the fuck? Of course, it's sacred semen. The things I do for this podcast, I chose this book. This is my own fault that I'm putting up with this. Honestly. Luckily for Dolly, she likes sex. Even if it's entirely involuntary, it's just her natural sex drive. It's only a minor shame that this awakening happens under terms of violence, coercion and fear. The next chapter makes clear she's having a great time. She's got nice clothes, a life of ladylike indolence, tons of jewels, the admiration of a man for her figure and regular rogering. Chapter 9 also functions as a kind of sex manual, describing all the interesting ways Randolph poked Dolly. Dolly expresses surprise that there are so many ways to enjoy a poke and then, helpfully for the reader, lists them. She even points out that in some positions the woman has to do all the work. In yet more educational instruction, Dolly describes how a man and a woman would have sex in full evening dress while the woman was dressed in tightly laced stays. Just in case anyone needs to know, this is how you do it. Frequently, after dinner, he would have me in full evening dress, with tightly laced stays. On these occasions, he would sit on a chair, while I would stand in front of him with my back turned. Then, putting his hands up my clothes, he would feel me till he was properly excited. Finally, unbuttoning his trousers, he would let out his member in full erection, with the red tip uncovered and ready for action. I had then to pull open the slit of my drawers and to hold my petticoats above my waist, then lower myself upon the dart until it was into me as far as it could go and my bottom rested on his thighs. In that position he would possess me. Well with undies that opened at the crotch I'll bet lots of women were shagging in the drawing room after dinner. That's an unexpected insight into Victorian sex lives that I wasn't looking for no need to get undressed or even disheveled looking. The text does pay a lot of attention to clothing and how sexy clothes are, how undressing or nakedness is intensely arousing. The writer is obsessed that there is a naked body under all the layers of cloth covering a woman. Dolly is the perfect sex object in that she's young, hot, intersex but only when initiated by men loves a good poking but never complains. It's surely not a coincidence she's called Dolly, is it? The author dresses her up, undresses her and pokes her many times in this book. But then comes the twist in the tale. The Civil War comes to the doorstep of Randolph's plantation and he legs it, leaving Dolly in charge. Before she has time to get too bored, a handsome Union soldier, Captain Franklin, moves in. She fancies the arse off him and contrives to seduce him through such commonplace tactics as swooning in his arms. It works and he declares he loves her before shagging her senseless on the sofa. In more good news for Dolly, Franklin's dick is even better than Randolph's. Here's the description from chapter 18. Now clasping me in his arms and pressing his lips upon my mouth He gently but firmly forced the dart deeply into my body, and with a few strong movements of his loins, began to poke me in the most powerful way. He was eight years younger than Randolph, larger made, and much more vigorous. The force of the attack almost took my breath away, while the size of the weapon stretched the sheath to its utmost extent. Well, I suppose that's good news. I think the moral of the story is that the course of rapist types are not so well hung, but real men are the romantic heroes. I don't know, I'm not the target market for this. I did expect this new male character would vary the porn somewhat, providing an excuse for more poking in different situations. Maybe poking with a larger weapon, I don't know. But weirdly, that doesn't happen. Instead, the curtain is drawn across their other encounters. And this little summary is all you get. He rogered me every day, some time or other, and I seemed to get fonder and fonder of his embraces. They were done so vigorously and yet so decently. He always had me in the one position, lying on my back, and he never exposed my person more than was absolutely necessary. I think a man copulates with the woman he loves differently from the woman he merely lusts for. More sex manual advice. Don't try all that fancy stuff with the women you marry. Missionary only if you love someone. How fucking disappointing is that? I had visions of lads reading this and mentally making notes of sex positions to try. Especially the drawing room one. And now it turns out they're not even allowed to do that. No wonder so many men paid for sex. Their ideal vision of monogamy was beyond stifling. Thing is, in 19th century England, sex workers were often purloined, exploited young women. Here their fall is played for laughs, there's no shame or no consequences to being a ravished virgin. For all the pearl clutching in chapter 8, the author doesn't think it's a big deal Dolly ends up pursuing a career later as a sex worker. Her story is told to an English guy she picks up, who writes it down, as this is the imagined narrative of a cheerful whore. Now, I'm not saying all sex workers have to be tortured or that sex work is inherently degrading. But Dolly is cast as a coerced woman with no options at the beginning. I can't help feeling her cheerfulness and chipper attitude in the face of what would be a traumatic experience is a way of relieving the reader of his guilt for using sex workers. All too many women and girls in England's brothels had been coerced or sold into indenture or slavery, and that doesn't even include those who had no choice because they had no economic options. London's brothels were plentiful and fairly public, staffed by people who may have preferred less exploitative dangerous work. The lovely Dolly is cheerful at her work, but Randolph doesn't beat her. She never gets pregnant or catches an STD, and she never, not once, tries to escape. You're yeah, right lads, true story my arse. When he tires of her, he gives her a generous wadge of cash and fecks off. I mean, that's the ultimate happy ending. So that's a sample of the gigglesome moments, but just a sample, there's lots more. However, in the midst of this amusement is enough racism to make you sick. Remember, after all, that Randolph owns a plantation. The only enslaved people who feature prominently are women, because this porno is not interested in men as sex objects. The maids and the housekeeper appear as characters for their sexual and racial interest, particularly their arses. These women are all whipped, spanked or paddled at some point in the text. The writer makes sure to cover all the bases in beating and flagellation kink.
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: There is a lavish description of their backsides since this book is written for 19th century arse men. So far, so normal in a porno. But there is also a lot of discussion about how skin color determines the sensitivity of the skin to beating. The darker women did not mark or feel the pain as much as that of paler skinned women. Oh god. It's so disgusting. I mean, we know women of color have a hard time now persuading medical professionals their pain is real. That this deep prejudice is rooted in slavery isn't surprising, but it is depressing as fuck. That's not to say that the text is pro-slavery. Randolph is a dick who you're not supposed to like. He doesn't defend slavery with any convoluted paternalistic arguments that his class used when trying to be politically correct. In chapter 10, he brutally and plainly lays out his case to Dolly. You're a northern girl, so you don't understand how we southerners look upon our slave women. When they take our fancy, we amuse ourselves with them, but we feel no compunction in whipping them whenever they misbehave. Their bodies belong to us, so we can use them in any way we please. Personally, I have no more regard for my slaves than my dogs and horses. Jesus, he's so crass and blunt and coarse. You're not supposed to agree with Randolph in this text. But there's still staggering and shocking levels of racism, even if the author actually disagrees with slavery. Dolly molests children she spanks because she wants to feel the genitals of children of colour. Oh my god, so gross. She is friendly to her housekeeper, but thinks she cannot understand her position as an outraged virgin because, quote, her ideas, like those of most slave women, were very loose on the subject of feminine virtue, unquote. Honestly. Why did I read this? It's just repellent. But it turns out that Randolph had sex with the housekeeper many times in their respective youths, so I'd say she had a pretty good idea of what Dolly was going through. What's the absolute worst racist thing in this text is the appropriation of enslaved people's suffering for titillation. The real and acknowledged violence of slavery is a pleasing contrast to Randolph's treatment of a pretty white virgin. It also gives the reader a clandestine thrill, I think, to flirt with the idea that maybe Dolly is also a slave, that a white person could be in the same powerless place as a person of colour. All of this is to provide an excuse for the white male reader to get his rocks off while technically disapproving of slavery. Oh my fucking god. Don't read this. Please don't read this. This text is fucked up. And it's not the only slavery porno from this era either. Another pornographer, William Lazenby, also based in Paris, had a catalogue devoted to works about slavery in America. So there were marketable English sexual fantasies around this subject. This could have been because a narrative set in the slave states of America afforded copious opportunities for whipping, an obsession of 19th century porn, Flagellation at that time was not a minority kink, but a mainstream, practically vanilla sexual fantasy. I suppose Dolly's story offered different scenery to the standard English fare of vicars, governesses and schoolboys. To be honest, I'm not surprised whipping was really popular. Physical beatings were normal at all levels of society and at most ages. Children were slapped, caned and birched by their parents, teachers and the courts. Whipping was a punishment in the judicial system, although rarely used from about the mid-19th century onwards. Wives were beaten by husbands all the time. It's only a matter of comment if they went to extremes, really. Adult men beat each other, especially in the army and navy. And posh schools were famously violent places, with boys whipped by staff in public and private rituals of sadism. There was a lot of physical chastisement in the 19th century. I suppose it's not strange that flagellation was a standard sexual fantasy. But now I want to talk about the pseudo-scientific language in the subtitle. Do you remember the phrase curious anthropological observations from the subtitle? I mentioned Charles Harrington at the beginning. He was a professional porn dealer who ran away from London when police attention became too persistent. If he hadn't he could have ended up in prison and possibly even died there which had happened to porn merchants before. From 1896 to 1907 Carrington was the most important supplier of English smut. So how did a mail order business like this work when the books couldn't be sold openly? How do you get customers if the material is too filthy for public advertisement? Carrington had lots of ads, but he couldn't say things like read about sexy girls or jolly good rogering for all. His advertisements had to be clean enough to get through the post, which was searched for filth, while suggesting the depths of depravity on offer. Luckily, there was a whole tradition of euphemism and illusion already established around sex in the public sphere. Newspapers advertised contraceptives and abortifacients in all sorts of creative ways. A patent medicine to relieve female irregularities might induce miscarriage, or at least the women who ordered them desperately hoped it would. An ad titled Observations on Marriage with Plain Directions could refer to contraceptives or abortifacients. In such ads, an address was provided where the reader wrote to, enclosing payment, and would then receive goods in return. Of course, if you were young or innocent, the code didn't mean a lot to you. Victorians did talk about sex in public, but it was in a language that relied on reading between the lines. Ostensibly simple ads had to be interpreted and translated to understand the real intention of the products on offer. Carrington's business model ran in the same lines, relying on readers sophisticated enough to decode the ads. But of course, his products were obscene texts aimed at men. He had to use a subtly different coded language. Like many filth merchants before him, he turned to science to get wicked books under the radar. And I read this really amazing article by Sarah Bull that explained how Carrington achieved this feat. Science books often contained material that was considered obscene in other contexts. Full nudity, detailed close-ups of genitalia, description of sexual acts and their consequences. A particularly funny example of science being marketed as porn was a textbook called On the Diseases of the Generative System. It was published in 1811, written by John Roberton. I know you're thinking, that sounds unsexy, unless you have a fairly specific kink around medical examination and genitals. But a publisher reprinted it in 1824 as the generative system of John Roberton, selling it on the basis of the illustrations of women's genitalia. Et voila, science is porn. I don't know about you, but I instantly thought John Thomas when I read John Roberton. Proof that if you're dirty-minded enough, you can find sex everywhere. Science was potentially extremely rude in the 19th century, far too rude for a respectable conversation. When new disciplines like anthropology and sexology developed, the border between science and obscenity got blurrier. Anthropologists talked about the sex customs of foreign peoples, often including illustrations of naked people. Cause science, of course. The thing is that obscenity isn't a genre or a type of publication, but an effect. So if people got horny reading a science book, it was obscene. Of course, actual scientists were extremely pissed off that serious scholarly work was being confused with wank material. When Carrington published a book called Untrodden Fields of Anthropology, the British medical journal The Lancet reviewed it to inform their readers that it was garbage and not science. So when the subheading to Dolly Morton mentioned anthropology there's a very canny marketing reason for it. That attempt to talk about whipping as if it was a scientific experiment was deliberate. You could argue this was just a camouflage but some scholarly publications also skirted that line using footnotes and appendices to make their explicit content palatable. So it was a two-way street. Porn was semi-scientific and science was often semi-pornographic. Semis all over the place. Sorry, that's the gin talking. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is that veneer of politics and science in Dolly Morton was deliberate and part of a well-established cultural code in late 19th century Britain. It was definitely the most perplexing aspect of the text for me. The introduction consists of conversations about the evils of slavery, interspersed with vigorous pokings and tremendous cock stands. It's the weirdest combination of lewd and lecture I've ever read. I was not expecting porn to try to teach me about the evils of slavery – But to fully understand the rudeness of Dolly Morton it's time to play censorship bingo. I'm hoping it'll be off the scale. It should be because it's a proper porno. First up breasts. Well yes there are one or two references but it is overwhelmingly about arses. Bestiality. No not at all. Sex work. Yes, I mean, at the very beginning, Dolly is identified as a sex worker, and at the very end, it's revealed she's found other friends since Randolph. But yes, it is supposed to be the tale of a sex worker. Racism. Hell yes, so much racism. Unbearable amounts, really. It makes it hard to read. Drugs. Divil a bit, actually. Hardly even any booze. Politics. Oddly for a porno. Lots and lots and lots of politics. And then swearing. There is, but only tangentially. Randolph tells Dolly all the relevant dirty words used to describe sex acts, but they're never written down by the narrator. The power of the filthy words is so strong they cannot be said. I think I'm gonna tick this, even though it's a bit of a stretch. Next up, infidelity. Yes, one of Randolph's mates who calls round for debauched parties is not only married, but, the narrator sadly informs us, the father of daughters. Lord, the father of daughters trope is pretty old. Being outwardly respectable or a father never stopped anyone being depraved in their sex lives. Then crime. Yes, I mean, Dolly is effectively kidnapped and held against her will. Genitalia. Oh God, so many swords and sheets. I may need a special bingo card for genital synonyms next time I read porno. Spots and things, tools and weapons, ah, yes, definitely tick this one. Abortion. No, not at all. This is a romp. There's no time for messy real-life complications. Orgies. Well, funnily enough, almost, but not quite. Randolph hosts a party where the servants are all naked, and made to race up and down for the amusement of the assembled men, but group sex does not follow. Everyone retires to their respective private rooms with one partner of their choice. I think that's a highly unlikely conclusion. Anyway, I can't take orgies because there's no group sex. Sexual assault. Well, yes, almost all the sex is coercive. Dolly does get to shag of her own free will and enjoys it just the same as the abusive sexual encounters, which is totally realistic. And the sex between the white plantation owners and the enslaved women is, by definition, an assault. I really did feel quite ill by the end of this book. I'm not going to call it a novel either. On the internet they call it a novel all the time. This is not a novel, it's just a selection of shagging scenes Next up, extramarital pregnancy. Well, it's not in the plot. No inconveniences get in the way of the porn. However, any time a woman of colour appears, her genetic ancestry is described in racial terms like quadroon or octroon. These enslaved people were born because of sexual assault by plantation owners. Obviously, marriage was not involved. In any case, marriage between different races was illegal. So the constant drawing attention to this fact counts as enough of a reference to extramarital pregnancy, I think. Then masturbation. No. Sex toys. Okay, this could be a controversial choice, but I'm going to say the whips and paddles count as sex toys. Anytime there's a beating, the men get horny. So I think that's fair. Feminism. Fuck no. Definitely not. Then divorce also no. Contraception? No, not at all. Menstruation? I mean, no fucking way. Come on. And then blasphemy? Well, porn isn't really about highfalutin abstract concepts like God, so no. Oral sex? Also no, not at all. It's not even in the sex manual part of it. Graphic violence? Well, yeah, I think the descriptions of whipping count as graphic violence and then there's all the horrible violent undercurrents in every page of the book. And finally, queer content. Nope, this is aggressively straight white man porn. So, adding it all up, The Memoirs of Dolly Martin gets 12 out of 25. It's a respectable score, but not particularly lewd. The ban in 1989 seems very silly. There was a lot of nudity in magazines and newspapers by then. But porn wasn't very widely available just yet. Connoisseurs could order through the post from Belfast and England, but the newsagents did not carry porn mags. The first ever sex shop opened in Dublin in 1991... But outside of Dublin, there was a lot of resistance to shops selling dildos and dirty mags. In Cork City, landlords refused to rent premises to the guy. The guards, customs, and local government were obstructive and belligerent. In the end, Jim Bellamy, the sex shop kingpin apparently, bought a building so he could open a shop in Cork City in 1995. I well remember the controversy over this one. We used to joke about calling in every time we passed, but I never did. It looked dark and scary, and I was sure it was going to be full of dirty old men. Reading the newspaper coverage at the time, though, it seems to have attracted a diverse customer base on the first day. There were couples shopping for joke birthday presents. Though, how true was that, really? It would be hard to tell the local paper you were on the lookout for sex aids. There were lads trying to read the gay or stud magazines from cover to cover. They were told there was a five-minute browsing rule that they had to buy or get out. That the sex shops sold gay porn never featured in the public condemnation of them, but it must have fueled some of the outrage. Of course, no one would mention gay porn because that would be talking about really unmentionable stuff. The battle over porn was being fought into the mid-90s in Ireland. Pretty much until the internet arrived, actually. So it looks like banning Dolly's antique adventures wasn't aberrant or odd. Now it's hard to see the memoirs of Dolly Morton as lewd, but in the 1980s, porn was still relatively rare and considered pretty dangerous. One last nugget about the memoirs. A Joycean scholar has recently suggested that the flagellation bits in Ulysses owe something to this little book. Of course Joyce read a lot and he read all the filth he could find too so there's a good chance Dolly Morton or one of Carrington's flagellation narratives helped create the modernist masterpiece that is Ulysses. If you do want to read this weird racist porno for research purposes I'll say nothing. Perfectly valid excuse as far as I'm concerned. Next time... It's a novel called Mr. Weston's Good Wine by T.F. Poise. I have no idea what it's about, and I've never heard of Poise. In fact, I mightn't be pronouncing his name right at all. It'll be an adventure, though hopefully one without racism and with minimal sexual assault. Till then, keep your hands squeaky clean and your minds filthy.